Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 31, please. I think we got down to verse 11. Psalm 31, verse 11, where it says, I was a, re I was a reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and a fear to mine acquaintance. They that did see me without fled from me. And he's talking about being deserted by his friends and by even his acquaintance and his neighbors. And then we talked about that one. Let's pick up with verse 12, if you will. He says, I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. He's forgotten by those that he had helped. You know, sometimes when you help people, you think they'll at least remember to say thanks. But he says, I was forgotten. As a dead man out of mind, I am like a broken vessel. And uh, the ones that he had helped and the ones he had been good to, well, evidently they didn't remember anything. But you know, the Lord does never forget us. We may be forgetting by those around us, but the Lord never forgets us. Verse 13 says, For I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. Now he was slandered. You remember if, if we look back, uh, I gave you in verse 1, there was quick deliverance. He said, deliver me speedily. Verse, I mean, verse 2, he said, uh, deliver me speedily. And verse 3, he said, uh, lead me and guide me. And verse 4, he says, pull me out of the net. And then uh, verse uh, 6, he says, he hated lying vanities. In verse 7, he thanked the Lord for considering him in the time of trouble and giving him liberty and freedom. And then in verses 9 and 10, we find that he had both he had uh, grief of both body and soul, like many of us. Verse 11, we just mentioned he was deserted by his friends. In verse 12, forgotten. And verse 13, slandered. These are some of the David's miseries. These are the miseries that had come to David. And verse 13 says, For I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. If you have fear on one side or other, that's not so bad, but on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. Many of these things are true about Jesus in his uh, suffering and in his betrayal. And they devised to take away his life as well. Verse 14, But I trusted in thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my God. So in spite of everything that we do, we need to uh, learn one thing above all things, and that's to trust in the Lord. Just to always trust in God. The Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct thy path. So if we'll learn to do that, we should learn a great deal. In verse 15, we find that, that he trusted especially in the providence of God. Look in verse 15. My times are in thy hand. God has a time for everything in our lives. Uh, the providence of God is on our side. If, we tr if we're trustful, He'll work it out everything in due time. He says, My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. And so deliverance from those that would, would persecute us. God says, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And you don't have to worry about your enemies too much if you're trusting in God. And remember, everything will work out in due time. Back there in verse uh, 2, he said, uh, deliver me speedily. We don't want it in due time. We want it speedily, don't we? Most all the time, we do not have uh, enough patience to wait until God's time is right for anything to happen in our lives. But if we'll learn that there's always a time for everything. 
reading the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a time to be born, a time to die, there's a time to plant, there's a time to reap, time to sow, and there's time to reap. And all these different things of life, there's always a time. My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. And then we come down to, uh, well, we're talking about uh, beginning with uh, verses 14 through 18. Actually, this is David's renewed renewed prayer of his allegiance to the Lord and him trusting in the providence of God. And then in verse 16, we'll find that he uh, sought divine approval. Look, he says, Make thy face to shine upon thy servant. Save me for thy mercy's sake. It's good to seek divine approval. If you remember the uh, priestly blessing, I believe it's Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. It says, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. And this was the priestly blessing in the days of Moses. So David sought divine approval. And we need to seek divine approval. Save me for thy mercy's sake. Verse 17, he prayed for the Lord to avenge him of his enemies. Let me not be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon thee. Let the wicked be ashamed. By the way, the word ashamed sometimes means confounded. Let them be confounded and let them be silent in the grave. So he's trusting God to take care of the enemies. Notice that verse again. Let me not be ashamed. I don't want to be confounded, O Lord, for I have called upon thee. He didn't want to come away in disappointment. The Bible says, He that believeth on him shall not be ashamed. He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. He that believeth on him shall not be disappointed. He shall not have to go away to another to seek help. But he says, Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be confounded. And let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. You know, the first psalm, if you remember the first psalm we said, gives us an introduction to the whole, doesn't it? It says, blessed, remember, talking about the blessed and then the ones that the right, the, on the righteous. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners or sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which bringeth forth his fruit in his season. Then it goes on, verse 4, The ungodly are not so. So the first three verses talk about the blessed man, the happy man, the godly man. And then it says the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. And it says, Therefore the ungodly... Uh, uh, it's telling about God they shall not stand in the presence of God and the way of the ungodly shall perish alright let's look at this uh, next verse it says uh, let lying verse 18 let the lying lips be put to silence which speak grievous things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous now look at verse 19 oh how great is thy goodness which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee we're talking here about blessings that are laid up, blessings that are reserved, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of men, that God has wrought these blessings for those that trust in him before the sons of men. So God has many blessings laid up for his own. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says he hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places. 
So these are spiritual blessings that God has laid up for us. Now if you look at verse 20, it says, Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Protection from the proud man or proud man. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion, in a tent, from the strife of tongues. You know, there's not too much greater strife than the strife of tongues. When you have people gossiping and, and the sharp arrows, tongues, and you have a lot of times, that's the greatest strife that can be. You can strive with men physically sometimes, and one of us will overcome usually the stronger one. But when you have the strife of tongues, it spreads like uh, satanic fire that goes out and uh, tells uh, lies and untruths. And it says that during that time, thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. It's good to have God's protection around you wherever you go and whatever you do. God's protecting power a pavilion is a tent or a tabernacle tent. A great, huge covering for us and protection for us. Kept secretly. If you look at verse 21, it says, Blessed be the Lord, for He has showed me His marvelous kindness in a strong city. You know, there's a strong city here. There was a strong city in the days of, the, the, uh, of Israel. But there's a strong city in, that is to come from the Lord. You know, Abraham looked for a city not made with hands, whose builder and maker is God. Look at verse 22. For I said in my haste, look here, I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee. Hasty speech. I said in my haste, I am cut off from before thine eyes. Have you ever thought many times you say in haste what you regret that you said? There are many times that we're too hasty to say something. And it will, it will hear. He said, I'm cut off. I said in my haste, I'm cut off from before thine eyes. Sometimes we feel like that and we should not feel like that. The Lord says he's always present and always with us. And I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And why should we say in haste, I'm cut off before thine eyes? Nevertheless, and he says, Nevertheless thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee. Mercy was always there, and it always arrives on time. It's never too late. We think that it ought to be there when we first cry, but we get hasty sometimes. I said in my haste, I'm cut off before thine eyes. Nevertheless thou heardest the voice of my supplication when I cried unto thee. Verse 23. O love the Lord, all ye his saints. For the Lord preserveth the faithful and plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. In other words, he preserves, preserves the faithful and he rewards the wicked or the proud for what their deeds are. Remember what Paul said concerning. He says, Alexander the coppersmith caused me much evil. What did Paul say? The Lord reward him according to his work. He just left it in the hands of God, didn't he? He says the Lord will take care of that. The Lord reward him according to his works. And Paul had many that uh, turned against him. 
And if you remember, Paul said at one time, he said, at my first answer, no man stood with me. But he said, nevertheless, the Lord stood with me and delivered me from all, all problems, all temptations. So it says, oh, love the Lord, all ye his saints. By the way, who are saints anyway? Saints are all the children of God. They're not some special people that's better, a lot better than someone else. If you're a born-again child of God, you're a saint, children of God, saints, all that call upon the name of the Lord. Let me read for you in the book of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, it says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So he says, all that, are, uh, that call upon the name of the Lord, that rest upon the name of the Lord, all that are born again, children of God, they're all saints. And when it says, if you notice this second verse, under the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, if you have your Bible open, the word to be is in italics, which means that it's not called in order for you, after you're a Christian, to become saints by some special extra privileges and uh, that you become saints later, but you're already saints. The word to be doesn't mean that you're going to be that. You already are that. It means called to be that you already are being, not as if the to be means the future. You're called to be saints that someday you'll make sainthood, that's not what it's talking about. It says, called to be saints, and the word, well, let's read it without the word to be, because to be is in italics, which means that the translators put it in, in our King James Version. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are uh, sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, called saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both they, theirs and ours. So, it tells us there that they are saints of God. Now, back in our psalm, always hold your place where we're studying in the psalm. So, in verse 23, it says, O love the Lord, all ye his saints. That means all children of God, all born of green Christians, all that belong to God. For the Lord preserveth the faithful. Now, why should we love him? Because he preserveth the faithful. And he not only preserveth the faithful, he plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. He's going to take care of, like Paul said, Alexander the coppersmith had done me much evil. The Lord reward him according to his, his works. And then verse 24 says, Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. The Lord gives strength to those who are courageous. So David, in verses 19 through 22, or through 23, he praised God for future blessings. Blessings laid up in verse 19. Protection from proud men, verse 20. The strong city to come, verse 21. And hasty speech indicates doubt, but mercy always arrives on time. And then, why should we love the Lord? Because He gives, verse 24, He gives strength and He gives good, be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. All ye that hope in the Lord. Now then, the Psalm 32, if you turn to the 32nd Psalm, it has been called by some an evangelistic psalm. And it's divided up into several divisions. You have the blessedness of salvation. You have the misery of conviction. You have the way of salvation. 
you have the time of salvation, you have the fact that salvation is practical, you have that it's stupid to refuse God's salvation. In the last verses, you have the joy of salvation. So it's kind of divided up into those categories. But if you look at verse 1, it says, uh, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. This is the blessedness of salvation. First of all, you have transgression, then you have sin, then you have iniquity, and then you have guile. You have four things in these two verses. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression means revolt. It means violation of the law. The Bible says sin transgresses also the law. So transgression. But it says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Sin is a falling away from God. Sin is against God. Sin is against others. By the way, sin is against self too. We not only sin against God, we sin against others, and we sin against self. Remember when David had sinned against Uriah, and sinned against Bathsheba, and sinned against his family? The first thing that he said was his sin against God. He says in Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy love and kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. On down he says, Against thee... And thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Well, he had sinned against his fellow man. He sinned against his family and sinned against himself. But he counted it first to God. We realize that it's not just how we hurt someone else. It's what God sees in us and looks down and he sees us really where we are in our sins. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But our sin can be covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord, now listen, look at this, imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Now, iniquity means guilt that's contracted by sinning. And it means the presence of wickedness. It means the absence of equity. And guile means deceitful cunning. And yet, on the other hand, it says... Who, uh, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. He doesn't count it. We're guilty by sinning against God. And because of Jesus and his sacrifice, there can be no imputation of that guilt upon us. And there is none. Paul taught the lesson in the book of Romans concerning this. In fact, he quotes from it. Uh, in Romans chapter 4, he says, Even as David also, uh, verse 6, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not impute sin. Look. To whom the Lord will not impute. The word means to count or reckon. Someone says, well, you know, I'm a sinner. And we all are. And I've transgressed. And there's iniquity. There's transgression. There's guile. There's guilt. All of these four things is described in, the, in this blessed psalm of uh, Psalm 32. Are attributed to every one of us. And yet, uh, 
Paul says that David says, Blessed is the man, uh, is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He will not reckon it to him. Now, why will he not reckon it to those of us who have trusted in Christ? Because he's reckoned our sin or imputed our sin to Christ. He's laid it upon Christ. See, every one of us are sinners. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And we not only have sinned, but we, we do sin. Now, sin is not upon us, but it's within us. It's been removed from being upon us through Christ. But it's still in the old carnal nature that is within us. And yet God says, the man is blessed or happy that has not sin imputed or counted to him. If we count some something to someone, we reckon them that way. We see them that way. God doesn't see us that way. Now, we may look like sinners to others, and we probably are. And we may feel like that in our own hearts. And we may even be uh, accused of it by many. And the devil even comes along and accuses. But the Lord does not impute sin to us if He has relieved us from it because of Christ's substitutionary work because he was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. And therefore, God does not count it to us. And he counts us rather opposite that. He does not only not count us as sinners, but he, in the, in the reverse of it, counts us as righteous. You read on down the last part of this chapter, and this whole uh, chapter would be good, the fourth chapter of Romans. But let's pick up with uh, verse uh, 21. It says, in the speaking of Abraham, who believed God, it says, being fully persuaded that what he had promised, Abraham believed that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. He believed in God's promise. Now look. And therefore it, that means righteousness, was imputed to him, that, or his faith rather, was imputed to him for righteousness. It was reckoned. The word imputed means to reckon or to count. It was imputed to him for righteousness. Now then, uh, what about Abraham? Was this just written because of Abraham's faith? No. Look at the next two verses, three verses. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it, or uh, that righteousness was imputed to him, that it was imputed to him. Isn't that what was imputed to Abraham? Righteousness? Isn't that what God reckoned to him because of his faith? If that was, he says it didn't write it for his, his sake alone. But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised for our ju- again for our justification. Now it says, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed. What shall be imputed? Righteousness shall be counted or reckoned to us if we believe on him that, uh, that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, the one who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification, then what is God going to do for us? He's going to impute or count or reckon righteousness to us. He's going to count us that way. Well, we're not, but He's going to count us that way. He's going to reckon us that way. He's going to say that we are. He's going to declare judicially that we are. And you know, you can go around and worry about it. Say, well, I know I'm not righteous and I know I'm a sinner and I know this and that and the other. And you can worry yourself to death about it. But if you believe on Him who was raised up for our justification, who was delivered for our offenses, it shall be imputed 
to us also. What's the end? Righteousness. God says He's going to count it. He's going to count it to us also. And that's the way we appear in the sight of God. We know we're not worthy of it. We know it has to be by grace. Back in Psalm 32, you could teach the whole lesson in Romans chapter 4 over and over again with various illustrations with not only Abraham but David and and he comes back to Abraham and that's who we were dealing with in the end of the chapter. But uh, you find that this truth that Psalm 32, the blessedness of salvation, uh, let's turn back to Psalm 32 quickly. It says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Now, verse 3 says, it shows the misery of not trusting God for our sins. It says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of the summer. Selah. Before conversion, David was smothered with his convictions. Before conversion, before we trust God, he says, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old. The misery of conviction. You know, it's very miserable to not turn it over to God. You stay in that state of, of, of not confessing your sins. And he says, It's like my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture was turned into the drought of summer. An awful, terrible, dried up feeling. Dried up in the heat of the summer. The soul seemed to be in that state of condition. And that's where a person is until he turns it over to God. His conviction was not only uh, there, but it was continual. It was day and night. Day and night. He says in Psalm 51 verse 3, My sin is ever before me. It's ever before me. It's always on your mind. In Psalm 139, he says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Whither shall I flee from thy presence? You read Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. There's no hiding place when God's Holy Spirit gets a hold of you and convicts you of sin. We have to be willing to confess it before the Lord. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 12 is a good one for that. And then we find the way of salvation in verses 5. Look, verse 5, the way of salvation. He says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. In other words, you bring it out in the open and confess it. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. So the only way that you can get rid of it, the only way you can find deliverance from it, when there's conviction because of it, and that is confess it. I acknowledge my sin unto thee. And mine iniquity. He didn't say it was someone else's. You know, we have a we have an ability to acknowledge someone else's sins and shortcomings, don't we? Remember Isaiah? The Bible says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. And then when he saw him high and lifted up and his train filled his temple, and the seraphim said, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And finally, after he'd seen this glory, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Before that, it was everybody else. Now he says, I'm the one, too. He says, not only the people, but it's me, too. You see, we're all sinners. And Isaiah uh, confessed that, and the Lord sent, uh, touched his lips with a coal of fire, cleansed him, purged him. 
forgave him. And then he says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, Isaiah says, Here am I, Lord. Here am I, Lord. Send me. So we need to realize that all the Old Testament, the great leaders, David, uh, Nehemiah, Moses even, all of them confess not only the sins of the people, but their own sins right along with it. You read the book of Nehemiah, and he prays to God and he says, I and I and thy people, I and thy people, we have turned away from God. Alright? Look at this verse five. I acknowledge my sin, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. In verse 6, we find the time. For, er, for this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto, thee, nigh unto him. The time is very important. When there's the way of salvation, there's the conviction that must come first. And then the way is pointed out that sin must be confessed. And sin must con be confessed unto the Lord. In verse 5 it says, I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. You don't confess it to a man. Well, you say, well, James says confess your faults one to another. He says your faults one to another. But we don't get others to forgive our sins, to intercede for us in that way. We just acknowledge that we all have them. And that strengthens us to make us realize that we all need forgiveness from the Lord. But he says, I will confess my faults, uh, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord in verse 5. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Verse 6, For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Remember there's one says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. In an acceptable time. The Bible says now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. There was a time when the ten virgins were waiting for the bridegroom. Remember, and the five were foolish and five were wise. And, and when the bridegroom, behold, the bridegroom came, the come up, the announcement was made, and five of them were unprepared. They had not prepared. They didn't, they didn't take advantage of their time, did they? They thought everything was all right, just rocking along with the tide, rolling along with the tide. I think the, the real lesson for every one of us is to learn early in life to take care of our, our own spiritual well-being. The poem Brother Nichols read concerning, you know, early in life. You need to see where you are. Take your stand early in life. And then we find another thing here. Uh, the time of salvation. And then there's a time of approaching danger. Look at verse 6. It says, For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with the songs of deliverance. So, the trouble is coming in, in due time. Now then we find in verses, uh, verse 8, if you look at verse 8, salvation is very practical to us as well. It says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. Sometimes we just want the emotional side of the blessings. But he says, you need to be instructed. I, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way 
of which thou shalt go, I will guide thee with mine eye. That means we need to put into practice the teachings of God's Word. We can, can expect personal instructions. The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So we can expect personal instructions. And we can expect to be taught. We have to learn in order to be taught. And in order to learn, you have to come and be willing to be taught. have to come to the Lord. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's, he gives you that. Then he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And unless we're willing to learn, we will not be taught. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your soul. And we can expect a guide to go with us. Look at this. I will guide thee with mine eye. God's eye is ever upon us. The Bible says, Guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Remember, the, uh, Philip said to the eunuch, Understandest thou what thou readest? He says, How can I, except some man should guide me? And that doesn't mean we shouldn't read and read it for ourselves, but we need the, especially the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we need the guidance of those who've studied God's Word and minister God's Word. But we need uh, especially to be guided. And he says, I will guide thee with mine eye. Now then, verse 9, I want you to notice verse 9, that it's very stupid to refuse God's salvation. It says, Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Don't be like the horse or the mule. Don't be stubborn. Don't be resisting all the time. Some of you broken horses that are that are uh, headstrong. I remember I was riding one one time up. You know the mountain that goes up there this side of the uh, country club golf course up on the hill and up to the lookout tower, that tower, little tower up there. And I was riding about a four-year-old Palomina uh stud horse stallion up there and he was he just wasn't a fast horse like a race horse or anything he was just kind of a mixture between a quarter horse and then a work horse I guess you'd say but he was strong and he was he was strong enough to just he just cold jawed he wouldn't turn any direction he took that old hackamore bit side of his mouth and just stuck it straight out like that stuck his head just as straight out as he could go and he was running and he's running right toward, if you've been up there at that lookout tower on this side, there's a cliff there. And I mean, it's pretty rough. I think some of you have been there. And this horse was headed right. He, he veered off the road, and it's on the right and the lower side of the mountain there. And he's starting toward that cliff. And I just took my left rein and wrapped it around the saddle horn just one time before it would slide. And stepped off of him. He just pulled his neck around. He rolled over, and we were pretty close to that cliff. I'm sure glad I got off of him quick. Because we was heading in the wrong direction. But he was stubborn. He just wouldn't stop. And, you know, he couldn't run all that fast, but run fast enough to go off the mountain. And that's what scared me. And uh, he'd have been gone. Both of us would. We'd broke his neck and mine too. But, uh, and if you've been up there, you know the dangerous place I'm talking about. I'm sure Brother Jerry's been there. Haven't you, Jerry? 
the lower side of that. And some of the rest of you probably have too. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> we find that some people are stubborn as a mule, we say. Be ye not as the horse or the mule who, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. And so the stubbornness in the sight of God will not... Uh, will not uh, do you any good. To refuse puts you into a category with animals. And animals have to be forced to obey. And the child of God should uh, be willing to obey, not forced to obey. We should be willing to obey. The Bible tells us that you have now obeyed the gospel that was given to you. Uh, in James it says, Behold, we put uh, bits in the horse's mouth. We put the bits in the horse's mouth to turn them whichever way we want them to go. So we don't want to be like stubborn animals. And then verse 10, Many sorrows shall be the, to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Now then, many sorrows to the wicked. To, to refuse God's way is to bring many sorrows upon yourself. But mercy will come if you'll trust in the Lord. Look at this again. Many sorrows shall be unto the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercies shall compass him about. Aren't you so glad that sometimes in your life it just seems like everything that you do, God's arms of mercy and love and grace are around you. It just seems like that He's going to love you in spite of all your mistakes, in spite of all your faults and failures. Mercy shall compass him about. And then the last verse uh, we want to talk about the joy of salvation. It says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Now then, we can rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 3, verse 1. And we can shout for joy. Psalm 47, verse 1. Let's turn to Psalm 47, verse 1 uh, quickly, if you will. Psalm 47, and verse 1. And notice what it says here. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> it says, Oh, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. So it says we can rejoice with a triumphant rejoicing. And then if you find in verse uh, 11 again, it says, All ye that are upright in heart, salvation that brings joy must come from a cleansed heart must come from the inside. Remember, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we need to realize that the joy of salvation, we can rejoice in the Lord, we can shout for joy, and we can come with a cleansed heart.